I am fantasy and paranormal romance author Leslie Penelope, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello friends, today is Sunday, August 28th, 2022, and this is episode 184 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is... I was in San Diego, and I got to see my brother, who I haven't seen in person in quite a while, and his play, and I did an event at Mysterious Galaxy Books. So I got in late last night. I'm still working on, you know, as soon as you get adjusted to the time change, you come back. At least I did for this trip, because it was only four days. So, you know, not at my most alert, but I had a great time. I had a great trip. I got to see his play twice. He was playing Oberon, the fairy king in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Old Globe Theater. And I didn't realize that uh, it was going to be an Afrofuturistic interpretation, at least according to the program. Um, the costumes were fantastic. I have a little picture on my Instagram of the posters and, you know, you can't take pictures during the show. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what makes it Afrofuturistic. <laughs> I mean, there were several black people on the cast. Um, you know, the fairy queen, the fairy king, and several others were, were played by black actors. I guess the costumes, I'm not exactly sure what makes a costume Afrofuturistic. Um, the set design, I appreciate that that was the, the intent and, you know, the essence or the energy of it. I'm just not sure that if I hadn't read that in the program, I would have understood. All that being said, it was great. I enjoyed it both times. And then, yes, I'd never been to Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore, which is a science fiction and fantasy bookstore out there before in person. And it's really nice. It's really cool. If you're out there, definitely go check it out. I know they had moved locations. They had been somewhere else for a really long time. But this new place, it's big. It's like it's spacious, but it's full of books. <laughs> And it's not just science fiction fantasy. They do have mysteries, thrillers, and romance. So um, I guess it's more of like a genre bookstore now. But yeah, everyone, everyone there was great. And shout out to DJ Reads, who was my conversation partner, who did a great job. Um, I also did an Instagram Live with him. I will link to both of those in the show notes because the Mysterious Galaxy event should be on YouTube, hopefully by the time I release this episode. So yeah, that was great. Um... Now back to the grindstone. In writing news, my writing update, I had to take last week to do world building because I finally got to the midpoint, which three weeks late, two, three weeks later than I wanted to. And the midpoint is the point in the story currently where my character and her sister get transported to this magical world. And when I was doing the first draft and I got to this point, I realized I hadn't done any world building for the world. So I just powered through. I pantsed it based on just a couple of, you know, in images that I put on my Pinterest board, some visual inspiration, but not really knowing how I wanted this world to be. So this week it was, okay, how does this work? So I created a new template based on, I think, a world building class that I teach. And I have several templates that I use as part of that class. So I just put them into a Word document and started doing it there. I didn't do it in Scrivener because something like this, I don't like the the text formatting in Scrivener. I never have, which is why I was briefly um, trying things in Storyist, which was fine, but some of the features that I didn't have, Storyist is another piece of software similar to Scrivener. It's just stripped down. 
And I actually started writing this book in Storyist. And some things I loved, but there were enough things that I was like, oh, I miss this, that I, I switched back into Scrivener. But I do not like Scrivener's text formatting. So I'm just doing it in Word. And just things like the headers, the fonts. I mean, you can do colors and fonts in Scrivener's. It's very, in Scrivener, it's really hard for me to put into words why I don't like it. I think because the width can change depending on how you set it. Whereas in Word, it's just the width is the width, unless you're in draft mode, I guess. But even then, yeah. At any rate, I am just filling out this world building document with things like, you know, the physical and historical features, climate and geography, uh, world history, the magic. I had to really dig deep into the magic. Um, customs, greetings, gestures, religion, organization, government, politics, you know, there's a whole list of things. It's it's based on Patricia Reedy's list, which um, I should be able to link in the show notes as well, because I think I got that. I don't know. I have lots of templates, lots of worksheets, lots, lots of resources that I find along the journey and uh, just collect in a folder. So I spent several days, most of the time, I started on the plane out there, and then I would wake up at like 4 a.m. California time and just and do some work. And it was not just filling out the world-building document, but having some kind of a basis for it. So it was back to research and back to my research notes that I've been keeping of various topics that inspire various aspects of the story and the magic and the world and just making decisions that I hadn't really made yet. Like, what does it look like? What does this fantasy world look like? During the fast draft, I just had like a basic idea and I really had to flesh it out, give it reasons for being the way it is, figure out all of those things. And I didn't finish the entire document, but I spent a good three days on it. And now I have enough to where I can start the actual revision of the scenes. Because I was working on the magic system and and the rationale for that, um, using, I think it was Holly Black's kind of rules, which are not really rules, but you have to figure out the type of magic, whether it's active or passive, the source, the technique, the range, the effect, and the cost. And so I I didn't have a good idea of that. And that's going to really affect the rest of the book because there's parts coming up where magic is going to be used to get them out of difficulties, get them out of trouble. And so I know I'm going to have to change that because what I have in the first draft is just whatever came to mind. And it's a good basis. Like I think it came from my unconscious or wherever, the muse, wherever it came from. But it needs to be like honed and um, I want to say normalized or, you know, just made into an actual system that I can understand and that I can use repeatedly and consistently throughout the rest of the story. And so I was kind of scanning through the, f- the fast draft, which I don't like to do. I don't usually read my entire first draft before. Like I, I'll read it at the beginning of the revision sometimes. Or I'll read the first half. But the second half is always such a mess. And I hate reading these words that are terrible, like as a book. You know, like I will reread a scene before I revise it on a scene by scene basis. But what I've been doing over the past couple of days is trying to just read through the rest, the second half as a whole, because I know the decisions that I made that I have to change and I want to plan them ahead of time. And I don't remember everything I wrote. The second half is a blur. Like I was dictating part of it. 
So I, d- I didn't have that hand to brain connection that kind of sticks things in my head. I was just talking, talking it through. And I, re- I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I think I do remember better when I type things and when I speak them. And so we'll see how, you know, if I continue dictating my first draft going forward, that may become an issue or just something I have to adjust to and figure out how I'm going to deal with. So yeah, world building, making decisions, doing lots of research so I can have a basis for these decisions. Things like, um, I, I would do a search and come across an obscure article about like some, you know, specific African cultural thing. And I'm like, oh, I can use that. <laughs> and I can incorporate that as the reason for why this is this. Or, you know, I'll just do research on a cultural or mytho- mythological thing and then change it to fit what I want or to fit the story in the world that I'm creating and how it needs to be. So that's the kind of research that I've been doing. And I feel good about what I have. So now I'm really at the point where I have to write these scenes and I've outlined the first few. I know I'm going to, I know I'm missing something with this magic. And I, I think there's one final question I have to answer about how this magic is going to work to get them out of these scrapes that they're going to get themselves into and then I'll be good to go for now. So on last week's episode, I mentioned briefly um, the class I took at Vona Voices, the writer's workshop with uh, author Juno Diaz. And I got a message from DG, shout out to David, about just what, I, you know, more about that, if there was some place to read about that. And not that I know of, it was you know, there's certain things that I took away from that workshop that have stayed with me and other things I'm sure I've forgotten. So I decided to look through my notes and see if there was anything more I can expound upon. And so this was a workshop that I took in 2013. It was the second week-long workshop that I'd done. I didn't, the first one I did in 2011 with the Hurston Wright Foundation, which is for Black writers. And I took a week-long class with Dolan Perkins Valdez, which was great. Um, other people in that same class, uh, Case and Calendar was there. Um, my friend, who and actually my college roommate, who I had lost touch with, and then we reconnected back then. She writes as both Inez Johnson and Sinead Johnson, and she's well on her way to being a multi-six-figure indie author of um, various genres of romance. And so every workshop that, that I've gone to, you know, you meet people there, and you're all learning together. And then if you stay in touch over the years you will see them start to do amazing things. Another writer who was in a different class at that same workshop was um, Nicole Ben-Dennis. Then when I was in 2013 at Vona, I was there with um, Daniel Jose Older and um, Leslie Nika Arima was there. Writers who are doing amazing things and I'm really proud to know and have been able to study with, with really amazing instructors. So I pulled out 10 things from my notes from my workshop with Juno that I was going to share. I may not be able to, well, I definitely will not be able to explain them the way that he does because really taking that workshop with him was completely transformative. Um, If you are not aware, that was in June, the end of June. I came back home to Maryland the next week and I was supposed to meet some friends that I had met at, at Hurston Wright and have lunch and just talk about what I learned. And so the day that I was supposed to meet them, so we met at a coffee shop and we were going to just have, you know, talk about things and write. That day I wrote, I think it was 10,000 words the first day, 11,000 words the next day. And that was the first draft of Song of Blood and Stone. I wrote the entire first very short draft 
literally the week after I came back from, from the Vona workshop with Juno Diaz. And so I was just full of inspiration. I mean, plenty of people are out here publishing without MFAs, without going to any kind of workshop. But if you like learning and being in that environment, being around other writers who you'll see some of them take off, you know, you'll be on your journey together and you'll go different places in your careers. But there are other people from both from those workshops that are are published and doing great. And um, it's good to see. So 10 things I learned from Juno Diaz. (laughs) Number one, unless it's breaking you, why would anyone else care? I think this is where I get the blood on the page thing that I talk about sometimes. Um, and so a lot of his teaching kind of comes back to you as an artist. But, you know, we're asking people to spend hours of their time with our words, unless it is part of you, unless it's something that you have to say, then, you know, why would you expect someone to, to spend that time? Two, give readers a chance to interact with the work. Don't chew it up and put it in their mouths. Let them come to different conclusions. Give them choices and let them decide what to think. And this is something that he kept coming back to over and over again. Like There have to be spaces. You know, sometimes in our, especially if you're a plotter, um, if there's a story you want to tell, you want to tell it the way you want to tell it. But you do have to remember as a writer or as any kind of artist, once you put it into the world, it's not yours anymore. It belongs to the reader, the consumer. And they're going to interpret things differently. They're going to bring themselves into it. And you have to give them space to do that. So as much as you're telling a story and you have your own ideas about what you're saying, giving readers a chance to do that work is important. Now, it's much more important in, say, literary fiction. Like, obviously, Juno Diaz writes literary fiction. I write romance and fantasy. And you do that to a lesser extent in genre fiction as opposed to literary fiction, where it's all about the difficulty of the work and sitting with it. And, you know, you want to, people, I think people write these books and expect them to be read over days or weeks. I really want my book to be read in a single night. So you have to, like, attenuate this to the genre that you're writing in. But I do still think about that. You know, people, I've been asking if there's a sequel to Monsters We Defy. There's not one planned. And, but I wanted to leave room at the end. You know, I wanted to, I knew it was going to be a standalone, but I did want to leave like an open door. So every thread is not tied up by any means. And there's room for either, you know, fan fiction, headcanon, maybe a sequel in the future. I don't know, but I tried to leave space there. That was kind of my way of, of dealing with that, this concept. Three, writers cannot be in cahoots with the story. Safeguard a space for the reader. The story shouldn't be dictated by the author, which is similar to two. And I I was reading the notes and I was like, writers cannot be in cahoots with the story. It's, It's slightly different from the previous one in my mind, in my interpretation of what he meant by this is that like, you can't be trying to trick the reader, I think. I think I've told the story. There was a book that I read. I think there were two. I read the first two books in the series. At the end of book two, you find out that the first person narrator has been keeping this big secret from the reader that they knew the whole time. That changes everything. And it felt like a dirty trick. And I stopped reading the series. And I didn't read that author for a long time either. And she's done other things that are similar that make you not trust her, even though she's wildly successful. Um, but for me as a reader, like I didn't like the trick. and I, And I felt like that writer was in cahoots with the story she was trying to do. It's different than a twist. It's different than um, a surprise. There's a way that you trick that doesn't feel good to the reader. And you're like, 
and you might be compelled enough by the storytelling and the characters to want to continue even after you've been tricked. But part of you never really trusts that author in the same way again. So that's my interpretation of that. Number four, memory is contained and not dangerous. Memory work, like dreams or flashbacks, disrupt the immersion of the story because the character is not immersed in remembering. And flashbacks are always difficult. Um, I'm dealing with that in the current work in progress. Right now I have some flashbacks and I think I need you to see this stuff, but I've been considering cutting them out and trying to bring that information in in a different way because... You know, that's why dreams are, are difficult. They're not dangerous inherently. Like, no matter what, unless you have some kind of fantasy reason where the dream is going to come true, when you're dreaming about something, the character, there could be conflict in the dream, but it's not really going to affect real life in that visceral way. Like, there's conflict in the flashback, but by virtue of the fact that the character is thinking about it, like, what was about the worst thing that could have happened? You know, there's less danger in that. And so they just have to be handled with care, not to say that you can't do them, but you have to acknowledge that and and handle them with care. Number five, the first person POV should not try to discharge the function of the third person POV. And this was from my feedback of the story that I submitted uh, to that workshop, which is a story I've never been able to go back to and complete because it got torn apart in the workshop. Um, it was a first person YA fantasy. And this is kind of where the information that I was talking about last week about first person, who are they telling the story to? Why are they telling the story? He talked a lot about kind of like the narrative and does the narrator know that they're telling a story? That kind of thing, which I'm actively dealing with currently in the current work in progress. But I was definitely guilty of this and I, of, of having the first person discharge the function of a third person narrator. So things that you wouldn't say if you were talking to someone and telling them a story. First person, that's what's happening. Third person, lots more leeway. And um, as I talked about last week, in in my first person current uh, narrator, realizing I was doing a lot of this, I'd had these intruders, I had these kind of third person things coming in where I was being too writerly. And that was just a good reminder of, of that rule or that idea that I think will strengthen the fiction by by really leaning into the first personness of it all. Number six, withholding information is not developing character or plot. Non-information creates disinterest. Another thing I'm struggling with now because my character has a secret and I'm very annoyed by books where the character has this big secret and you, you just don't find out and you don't find out and they keep looming it over your head. And you're like, I just want to know the secret. That's the only reason. Sometimes it's the only reason I keep turning the page because the book has annoyed me or it may not be that well written, but I'm going to find that secret out. And so I have a character with a secret and I don't want to reveal the secret until towards the end because it's part of the character growth. And that shows when she reveals the secret that she's grown. But I don't want to annoy the reader with this hanging over their head. So I mention a couple times, and she's guilty about this thing, but we don't know what she's done. So I'm still in struggling with it, trying to figure out how do you withhold information? Because you have to as an author. And maybe this, the, because what I wrote down was withholding information is not developing character or plot. Can you develop character and plot while you're withholding? Can you withhold in a way that says something about the character or pushes the plot forward? Number seven, 
With characters, take away the one thing you think is important and see what you have left. Allow them to interact with others to let the reader see who they really are. And in the margin I had scribbled, scaling this with at least two other characters allows you to triangulate. So it's sort of like showing, not telling. You know, you can say, oh, this character is brave and they help people, but you have to show them being brave and helping people. And you can triangulate that with two other characters and see how they, you know, two different people react to this person will give you lots of information about the character. The thing about taking away the one thing you think is important and see what you have left, I think that it's, you know, if your character can't just be one thing. You know, we have archetypes. Um, Say you have this brave hero who is a knight. Well, they have to be something other than a courageous hero. They have to, you know, you have the flaws come in, but you also have vulnerabilities and, you know, take away the brave, courageous knight and what are you left with? What other qualities make this character three-dimensional and fully fleshed out? And you can figure those out by triangulating them, by having them interact with other characters and showing the reader who this character is. Eight, we look away as writers to spare ourselves from feeling the pain and hope the reader will do the work for us. By taking the reader into our pain, we can be seen. And I think that comes back to blood on the page. It's another way of um, of dealing with that concept of writing being emotional work and telling these stories are a way to say something important within ourselves. Like we're putting things out into the world so that we can be seen and we are are working through the things that are important to us on the page. There's an admonition here. Like, you know, we're trying to spare ourselves feeling pain, but you have to go through the pain to, to make something that's worth reading is my interpretation. Number nine, always be building character. And that is pretty simple. I mean, I think that you know, something I didn't put on this list, but was in my notes was you have to take out the parts that aren't necessary, which sounds easier than it is. It's easier said than done. But one way to consider what you can take out is, is it building character? There's a lot of times when I I feel like a scene isn't doing enough work. And, you know, one of the answers could be have it do something to build more character, have another character that's that's, you know, either contrasting or supporting your character building and just showing a different aspect of that, of that character. And 10, tend to your wound, integrate it and write from there. Balance the person and the artist. Tend to your personhood so that if you never write again, you'll still love yourself. I feel like this is one of the last things he left us with, you know, tend to your wound. We talk about characters having wounds, um, but I think that all writers have wounds also. And that especially if you're drawn to certain themes over and over again, um, you know, we're all working things out through our work. I know that I I write characters who are nothing like me to try to understand these people. I try I write characters who are like me to try to understand myself and the situations that I put put them in are trying to understand the world and trying to come up with ideas about solutions to certain problems. So in that, I think that the writing is tending to a wound. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's natural. I think the work that we read that touches us the most is because it comes from someone's heart and it comes from someone's pain sometimes. It doesn't mean it has to be painful. You know, I don't 
in talking about monsters, I talk a lot about I didn't want to write black pain per se. And in this new work in progress, it deals with the aftermath of lynching. But I'd still I don't want to be writing stories of black pain. I want to acknowledge it. It's part of our life. It's part of our history. It's part of our present. But it's not the focus. I think that you can write about these things and even have them be very personal um, and be cathartic, but also be something that other people can get something out of because you put something into it. So those are 10 things that I learned from Gina Diaz. I hope they are helpful and interesting to you and you can get something out of them. If you never get to study with Gina Diaz, which most people won't, um, I still think he is a genius. I think that as a teacher, as a writer, it was a really intense experience, that class. And, um, and, it, and it did a lot for me. And I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to go. So yeah. So my goals for the coming week, I really just want to get as much written as possible in this week. I have a month left uh, before my deadline for this book, and it will be a struggle to get the book done, but I think I can make it. So that's it for me for this week. I hope that you have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com and I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts. I'm out of breath because I'm tired. (laughs) 